Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Dennis. Um, I'm Wendy. I'm a sexaholic in Colorado. Um, powerless over lust. I've had uh, sobriety, one temptation at a time, since November 7th of 11. And um, I know I've shared my story here before, so some of you may have already heard it. It's been a long time. Um, before I get started, though, I like to use the set-aside prayer. Um, so uh, just give me a moment. God, please help me set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, and especially you, so that I may have an open mind and new experience of all these things. Please let me see the truth. Amen. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had the privilege of doing a breakout session with Harvey A. at a international convention. And um, his thing is he never prepares for his speech speaking uh, his shares. He never prepares any notes or anything. He just goes with it. I thought I would try that, but I think I'm too chicken. <laughs> I'm still working on that. Um, so anyway, I do have a few notes that I just want to follow along the story. I kind of wrote these in the order of the steps, how the steps came into my life. So um, I believe that I was born to be a sex addict. So my, uh, the chaos in my life um, began as soon as I was conceived. My parents were both 16 um, when my mom got pregnant. And at that time, it was not acceptable to be an uh, unmarried pregnant teen. Um, so she was put into a horrible, horrible girl's home. And I was going to be adopted as soon as I was born. And um, my dad, who was also 16 at that time, decided that, I was not going to be put up for adoption. Um, he broke into the girls' home and kidnapped me and my mom and took us away from there. And in order to support us, he ended up joining the Marines. And this was during Vietnam. And so after two tours in Vietnam, he went AWOL. Um, he came home, and once again, he kidnapped my mom and I, and we moved away to Canada. Uh, we lived all over uh, British Columbia. We lived on the run. Uh, we lived in tents, trucks, communes. Uh, we finally settled in a cabin on a small island up there in the San Juans. Um, it was very rustic, out in the middle of nowhere. There was no electricity, no plumbing, um, no heat. Everything was natural. Everything was run off the land. Um, and my dad became instrumental in helping other soldiers 
who went AWOL to get fake IDs, get jobs, housing, um, you know, any, any soldiers that went AWOL would come to Canada and the first place they would go would be our house. And so this is when a lot of people, uh, mostly men, started going in and out of the house. Um, during that time, <clears throat> the parties were nonstop. Our family motto was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So um, I remember being like five years old and um, coming out of my room <clears throat> with my pillow over my head, yelling at them to turn down the music. You know, I was already parenting them. I was already being a parent. Um, uh, and it was also around this time when voyeurism started for me. So I would watch my parents and their friends all having sex together because, of course, it was the 60s. Everybody was having sex together. <clears throat> and I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was given alcohol and drugs and exposed to all of this sexual activity before I was eight years old. Um, I remember trying to mimic my mom's behavior with the men in the house. And uh, sometimes the men would be kind enough to show me exactly how it worked. <laughs> uh, uh, my delinquent uncle was sent to live with us up in Canada, and uh, he began molesting me almost immediately. And that continued until he left about two years later. Um, he finally went back to the States. And so fast forwarding, when President Carter granted amnesty to all the vets that went AWOL, um, once again, my dad whisked us away in the middle of the night without any warning back to the United States uh, home, supposedly. It was not my home. <laughs> my home was up there. And so now when I'm back here, I'm in a whole different world. There's electricity. <laughs> There's traffic. Uh, a lot of people. Um, and I did not feel like I fit in at all. Um, I didn't feel like I was home at all. Uh, so when I hit middle school, this was around third, third or fourth grade, and I learned, you know, to manipulate my teachers and all that kind of stuff. But when I hit middle school is when I figured out that other kids liked drugs and alcohol and that I had those things at my house, um, that I could get people to like me because my parents let us drink, smoke, and have sex. <laughs> I had very little supervision um, at that time, and the progression of my disease, I believe this is where the progression took off. Um, I barely remember high school. Um, I used my sexuality to get older men. I never dated men in high, or boys in high school, um, mostly men usually in their 20s, um, because they had money, houses, cars, drugs, you know, whatever I needed. And I always used my sexuality to get that stuff. I was never really um, genuinely in, in interested in any of these guys. Um, and it was also during this time that I was raped twice and had an abortion. And yet I still feel like God was watching over me. Um, now I think that I actually graduated high school. I don't. I have no idea how, but I know I'm the first girl on my mom's side of the family to graduate. Every other woman is had pregnant and dropped out before they were even 15. So God was definitely watching over me. <clears throat> in my 20s, um, I became a bar fly. So my main goal in going out to bars was to hook up with men. Um, I always 
I always made it look like I was trying to hang with my girls. You know, we're a big group of girls. We like to party. We're all hot and sexy. And um, But the reality is I really didn't even care about my friends. I would have left them in a hot minute to go and have sex with a stranger. And I did many times. <sighs> I always surrounded myself with a lot of people and a lot of noise. Um, I always wanted to be the life of the party, the center of attention. I never went anywhere alone or left alone. But inside I was lonely and insecure, scared and lost. And the fun was becoming a necessity to keep me from feeling these things. Fun, quote fun. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of icky stuff. Um, I met my husband in a bar surprisingly. Uh, we had sex on our first date, even though I wasn't really attracted to him. Honestly, I only went out with him for free dinner. I mean, seriously, I, I had no interest in him at all. Um, however, he was head over heels for me. And uh, I used that to my advantage for most of our relationship. Uh, I cheated on him before we were even married. I manipulated him into believing that it was his fantasy to have other people involved in our sex life. <laughs> um, and then he asked me to marry him. And, and after I got married, I panicked. Like, how was I going to keep having sex with whoever I wanted? You know, I'm married. I'm, I'm dedicated to this one man. And I've always had one foot out the door. Um, well, you know, lust is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it prevailed. You know, I manipulated my husband. Um, like I said, it, it was his fantasy and, and that way I could still get the high, um, that I would get, you know, with each new conquest, not people, conquest. Oh, and I still, I still didn't think there was anything wrong. Um, people were either doing what I was doing, wanted to be doing what I was doing or, um, you know wishing that they were doing what I was doing, and it was crazy. Uh, so, okay, progression, progression. Um, seven years ago, um, almost eight years ago now, my husband uh, caught me cheating. This had been the fourth time he caught me cheating, and those were just the times he caught me. He could have caught me a million times. Um, this time, however, he found pictures, emails, chats, texts, um, anything to leave that imprint in his brain, and he was done that time. He decided, that's it. I'm leaving. You're on your own. Um, you and all your men, you're on your own. Um, and now my disease had had a lifetime uh, of progression. So I had a lifetime to be ingrained in my brain, a lifetime of manipulating, objectifying, and using everyone that crossed my path. It didn't matter if you were a man, a woman, a friend, a friend of a friend, a family member. I would take, take, take what I wanted. Um, and so here's some of the prices I paid. <clears throat> I lost my childhood, my innocence. I lost many, many friends. I had really no true friendships. I lost a child to abortion. I have an incurable STD. I lost the trust and respect of people who mattered to me. T 
time. I lost so much time. I wasted so much time and, and it literally is lost. Like I have no memory of it. Um, honestly, I was physically sick by the time I came to this point. I was throwing up every day. I was dizzy all the time. Um, I was constantly trying to keep up with all the lies and all the different men and what I had told them. And it was insanity. This is the unmanageability. I think you can see that. And I could go on there, but, but yeah, I think you can see that. And, you know, by the grace of God, here I am, am coming to the good part. <clears throat> this is the part where I stepped into recovery. I saw that step one applied directly to me at this point, and I took it. I had just opened my eyes to the big empty hole inside me and the wreckage I had caused trying to fill it. Um, others in the program told me that what I needed was a spiritual connection with a higher power, a spiritual experience. I had had spiritual experiences, chemically induced spiritual experiences, <laughs> never a true connection. Um, and I never really prayed. We had no religion in my household. I mean, I told you our motto was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, um, that was our religion, basically. Um, and my sponsor, when I got a sponsor, she told me to pray. And I was like, pray, okay, um, what do I say? <laughs> and she said, just pray, just act as if you believe there's a loving God who can save you from yourself. Just act as if. And, you know, so I did. And it was weird. I, I just, it was really weird to pray. And especially out loud, she told me to pray out loud. And I just started out by just, talking to God, um, and that became my, you know, I have, <clears throat> I have certain prayers, but I really just like to talk to God. That's my connection with him is, you know, he's a loving God. Um, he's not a punishing God. So anyway, um, as I continued to act as if I believed in a higher power, eventually I did. You know, like it says, act as if and the feelings will follow. And that's exactly what happened to me. And it wasn't too long before I, I believed that, that I was worthy. I was worthy of God's restoration. You know, um, step three is a continuous, continuous practice for me. I constantly have to turn my life and my will over to God. I have an ego. And my ego, even after all of this, still thinks it knows what's best for me. Um, you know, having faith and trust in a higher power are, are still new to me. Even after seven years in recovery, I, I still have to, you know, practice relying on my higher power. Um, so, uh, my spiritual experience was not a flash of light. It was not God's voice. Um, it was an attitude change, even bigger than the one I had required when I first, you know, came in and took the first three steps. You know, all of a sudden I was wrong and I had to admit it. <laughs> in fact, I found out that I wasn't much of a nice person at all living in my, my will. Um, I learned a lot about humility. I always thought it meant that you were funny. Um, oh, man, 
<laughs> but for me, being humble means that I don't have to know all the answers. It means that I'm neither worse off or better than my fellows. I am only here to be a channel of God's love and peace. And as long as that channel is open, I receive as much love and serenity and peace as I give. And that's big for me, too. You know, being able to receive love um, was a huge, huge step for me in my program. You know, I, saw, I saw how my um, sick behaviors and disease attitudes had harmed others. And um, where admitting these harms and making amends helps me to stand tall and free of guilt, just like it says in the solution. I, ha- I was able to be free of that guilt, remorse, and pain, and not even knowing that I was in those feelings and trying to cover them up constantly. And I also, at this point, learned about forgiveness, um, which was, you know, the F word to me. Um, And then I found a a passage in Step Into Action where it says forgiving is giving up my right to get back at someone. And that definition worked for me. And um, one by one, I began to forgive people that I swore I'd never forgive, including myself. Um, Okay. Uh, Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about steps 10 through 12. Some people call them the maintenance steps, which they are, but I like to think of them more like the icing on the cupcake. By the time I've uh, taken these steps with the sponsor, I've admitted I'm powerless and that only a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Um, and <laughs> makes me think of another quote by Harvey A. It says, to be restored to sanity means you had to be sane before. (laughs) Anyway, um, anyway, I I have a higher power. That's my main connection now. That's what keeps me sober. That's what keeps me growing in recovery. And I have learned to trust that higher power completely with everything in my life. If I try to control or manipulate outcomes or people, Things are going to go bad and in a hurry. Um, This trust um, and this faith, again, is something that I continually work on. That's why I am in these meetings. That's why I do the literature, read the literature, because, you know, I'm I'm an egomaniac. Um, And by by working the steps, I discovered that maybe there's things wrong with me. (laughs) And um, that by simply admitting that, I can be blessed with humility. I never really thought that was a blessing. Um, I also found out that I, I did wrong. I hurt people, even though I thought I wasn't hurting people. And um, my husband was a huge target for this wrong thinking and, and behavior. My amends to my husband um, include things, I, you know, in addition to writing a short note, I didn't, I did not, um, write a notebook of things that I was sorry for. My amends to my husband was basically a paragraph. And the main part of my amends are living amends. I do things for him like genuine conversation, being present with him, listening to him. He likes to be um, gently touched like on his knee when I'm sitting next to him or have a hug as I'm walking by. 
Um, he likes to have time alone. So we make time to have dates. Um, I've, I've learned to communicate, you know, to listen. And I've learned to know what's important to him. So, you know, setting my feelings and myself aside. Um, anyway, so today I get to live the promises. I'm going to wrap up. I get to nurture um, a relationship with a higher power. I get to be wrong, admit it, and admit it. I get to slow down. I get to trust and be trusted. I'm trustworthy. I get to meet with my fellows daily, keeping me in check. My ego thinks I don't need people. I get to be humble before God and my fellows without guilt or shame or insecurity. I get to trust God completely in every area of my life. In any adversity that comes my way, I know that God's got my back. I also get to have real friendships, something I never had before, to give instead of take. I get to love and be tolerant. And all of these things and more are possible as long as I keep taking the next right action towards God and not my will. The promises are alive in me today because of the steps I took in recovery. And as long as I continue to practice these principles in all my affairs, I'll continue to enjoy the peace and serenity that comes from taking the 12 steps. And um, finally felt like I was home. I think I'm going to end there, and I really appreciate you listening. Kind of rambled on a little bit, but um, there's probably things I wish I would have said. <laughs> but that's up to God. He He said what I needed, what everybody needed to hear, and what I needed to say. So, thanks so much for being here, being part of my recovery. Um, I can't do it alone. Keep coming back. Work if you work it, and don't give up before the miracle happens.